When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and this is an introduction to what I guess you could call a two-part episode, two separate chats, which I will be releasing as two separate episodes, um, but I think they go together, pair together very nicely, and this will be the intro to both of them, so if you're listening to one, please go ahead and listen to the other. Um, one is a discussion with Atlantic writer Connor Friedersdorf. His uh, recent piece in The Atlantic, the DEI industry needs to check his privilege. Obviously, the discussion on the topic is diversity, equity, and inclusion. The other episode and chat will be... Uh, with Haley Kennington. She writes on the Wrong Speak Publishing Substack, and she had a great piece recently, Corporate Blackmail, ESG and the Woke Social Credit Score System. ESG is something that's been in the news and in the online discussion quite a bit recently. And so why I think these two uh, issues go together so well, or unfortunately well, um, is they both are indicative of two unfortunate dynamics in modern American life. One is the over-bureaucratization of everything, and two is the use of benign or admirable or honorable language to mask and hide and launder more nefarious and, and counterproductive activities and programs, which is what I think is happening with both DEI and ESG. Uh, okay, so DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, diversity has been around for a while, right? Or the notion that institutions, whether corporate America, hiring, college, anywhere where there's some sort of um, admissions process, uh, that you know that whoever's doing the admitting should be on the lookout for diversity, right? That people, uh, no matter their demographic category or their immutable characteristics, that their skills, abilities should be recognized and honored, and there should be a place for everybody there. And, and companies and schools should try to have diverse student bodies, diverse workforces. Obviously, there's some argument about what that means, but you know, uh, diversity, once again, been around for a minute or two. Equity and inclusion. Where did equity come from? It came out of nowhere. We used to talk about equality, and equality was not really something that was included in, you know, in corporate policy and corporate governance policy, right? Or, or college governance policy it was kind of like, hey, this is a principle everyone should be trying to do the right thing at all times. Um, but in America, we're pretty soundly grounded in equality of opportunity um, as opposed to equality of outcome. And we fought those battles over the course of the 20th century, contrasting our capitalist system with the communist egalitarian system and central planning system uh, for many decades. We see which one won out. And then this equality shifts to equity at lightning speed. And all of a sudden, who talked about equity other other than as a description of owning, you know, having ownership in private enterprises or companies before about 2016, 17? But all of a sudden, this is now part of a, a pro, part of a project and part of principles that are now supposed to govern nearly every major corporation and most non-major corporations in America. Right? Equity is simply the whitewashing of equality of outcome. That's what it's there to to drive forward. That we are supposed to try to find ways to make everything equal. 
uh, an equality of results. And we all know that people have different skills, different talents, different abilities, and put in different efforts. And I don't know how equal, uh, equity got in there. Um, inclusion. I, I think also people are wondering what the hell uh, is is inclusion and what's it doing in there and obviously people have a variety uh, of takes on it and can sometimes explain it away as something just you know wanting to make everybody feel welcome well okay is that necessarily part of the experience in the workforce of an employment situation or going to a school uh, I, couldn't that be handled by just making sure people don't abuse each other or just operate with basic sense of decorum and respect for each other but no this now has to be essentially pr- commodified and bureaucratized right it has to be something that a, a, bure, a bureaucrat or an executive that you have to hire someone to implement you can't just make sure that people are acting you can't just have hr making sure that nobody's being abusive or, or violating uh, violating company policy you now have to have someone teaching everybody how to make everybody else feel included and that's kind of childish is it not that really is a little bit more akin to something that you would hear about in elementary school in, in kindergarten let's have little exercises teaching people how to treat each other I mean, that's something you do with children once people get to the point of adulthood you understand that they're going to have various missives hostilities um that things get sloppy and interpersonal dynamics between people and you know that a company is going to is not always not every company can be everything to everyone somewhat is going to be somewhat exclusionary just like a hiring process is exclusionary everybody who's not up to the task everybody's not up to the qualifications is going to get excluded so it's very strange that inclusion seems to now be a bureaucratically mandated principle of corporate america and also of American higher education. I mean, just looking at, at looking at some of what um, is part of the inclusion prong of a diversity, equity, and inclusion program, um, a day of expression that employers should have a day of expression so all their employees uh, have an opportunity to express their passion for a social justice cause that is important to them. I, this is this is appropriate in the workplace. I and mean, this this is for children. No. This is not I mean, listen, if there's some if there's a particular social justice movement that is specifically applicable or relevant to a company's business, then that's a different story. But that's not those boundaries are not here. The rationale behind diversity, equity, and inclusion, once again, all three words together, uppercase bureaucratized, is that companies, every company needs to be having something like a day of expression so that everybody, all their employees can can find a way to express themselves in their personal beliefs that have no business in the workplace, right? Other things that are part of DEI programs, um, unconscious bias training, uh, uh, been proven many times over to have no impact whatsoever to, if anything, uh, create more division within the workplace because everyone's just going to understand. Well, I, uh, hold on. Wait a second. You know, I, I make observations just like anybody else. And I try not to be prejudicial or racist based on people's immutable characteristics. But I don't need anybody at an advanced age, you know, once I'm an adult in the workforce to tell me how, how to treat people, you know, with a basic level of respect and humanity. Right. Um, allyship training. What on earth is that supposed to mean? Uh, I think you get the picture here. But, you know, Connor's thesis in his piece on DEI is that in uh, uh, saying that. And, and so one of the reasons why the bureaucratization of this is so insidious is that do you know how much money is now being funneled through this? Do you know how many people are now employed to teach a- as executives or, or consultants in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion to try to implement these programs? 
in corporations. And you got to wonder, is that money being well spent? Are we wasting billions and billions of dollars on funding people who are already in the executive class and just paying diversity, equity, inclusion inst- uh, uh, consultants and instructors $250,000 a year? Meanwhile, there are people who, you know, uh, who are part of the groups that they're supposedly uh, uh, teaching these lessons for that are struggling in working class environments and need some assistance with their material conditions and their personal finances. Uh, are, is our society really allocating funds correctly when we're paying all this money to DEI executives and really screwing over the working class? Class. And that's Connor's thesis, and that's what he and I uh, will discuss. Okay, so getting on to ESG, which I think once again is very much related, but there are some interesting differences. But an interesting parallel, much like with diversity, equity, and inclusion, the diversity piece you can kind of make a case for, right? It's it's been around for a while, and you could say, okay, you know something, this isn't just whistling Dixie. It's not just covering weirder uh, attempts to um, create communalism uh, and treat people like children. Uh, and no, we really should have at least as a principle, maybe not our number one principle, the desire to have a, a diverse workforce or a diverse community, right? That you could justify uh, certainly. Similarly, in, in environment, social, and government, environmental, social, and governance, environmental is one that may be legitimate, right? We should be looking at corporate America that has an impact on the environment and trying to determine which ones have a heavier or more harmful environmental impact and judge. And there should be at least one piece that judges companies based on that. It should certainly not be the sole metric or the primary metric uh, other than maybe for uh, 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 companies that are directly involved in natural resources or toxic waste and things like that. But environmental, yeah, sure, we should maybe be measuring that. That is a measure of ethics. Then social and governance. We start diving into things that are just so subjective. Uh, we're measuring the wrong things. It's why, why you'll see, as I'll describe in a minute, you've got companies that are literally putting out products that are killing people that get higher ESG scores, other companies that don't kill people just because they have a more diverse workforce. An outside organization based purely on a score, judging whether or not they treat their employees well by, you know, whether or not they give away gym memberships or give away free lunch or have a foosball table um, on, uh, you know, in the office. I mean, these things are incredibly hard to quantify, but taking something that we can quantify a little bit better, like environmental scores or environmental impact and lumping it in with social and governance, we've scrambled the whole thing. Just like with diversity, equity, and inclusion, by adding the the EI to the D, we screwed it all up. And just like adding the SG to the E, we've screwed it all up. And to that point and why I think that's the case, another piece uh, uh, from a former guest of mine, Aaron Sabarium, recently wrote in the Washington Free Beacon, how tobacco companies are crushing ESG ratings. Tobacco companies are crushing ESG ratings. Philip Morris, all these companies, either cigarette companies or oil companies, are doing really well in ESG ratings. So uh, if this is the case, if ESG ratings are supposed to measure social credit or measure ethics or measure the magnitude or how good a company is from a moral, moral or values perspective, maybe the measurement system is off. Maybe the measurement system is off when Philip Morris gets thir- uh, an ESG score that's 37 points higher than Tesla. I mean, Tesla is taking so many gas guzzling cars off the street, but because it doesn't participate in enough uh, kind of peripheral outside diversity programs or doesn't have enough female executives, it has a much lower ESG score than Philip Morris. Do you not see what's off here? Okay, so in my chat with Haley Kennington, ESG scores a lot underlying that. I mean, that that is not the last of the alphabet soup. You've also got CEI, which is kind of a subcategory of ESG. I mean, also, I think a lot of people have gone uh, where, I, where I disagree with Haley, as you'll see in our conversation, um, but I think she come, kind of comes around to agreeing with me a little bit, is that you cannot explain the entirety of corporations embracing social justice or progressive values just by ESG with BlackRock and Vanguard and a couple of big hedge funds and index funds um, pushing ESG. 
ESG scores, right? They're, they're not the only investors in town, right? I mean, most companies, most corporations do not have BlackRock uh, as an investor. They do not invest and hold a 6% stake in every publicly traded company on the face of the planet, right? So clearly, there are a lot of companies or a lot of public, uh, public corporations that are doing stuff in the DEI ESG world or embracing social justice in a manner uh, for reasons beyond just wanting BlackRock and Vanguard um, to reflect flav- favorably upon them. And there's a lot of companies with ESG scores that are low that do incredibly well in the public markets have shown great stock performance for Tesla, for instance. Um, so I, I don't think it's such a one-to-one relationship between companies doing all this woke idiot, engaging in all this woke idiocy and wanting to have ESG scores that are high. Um, I think it's also, it's kind of combined with some of those incentives from the private investor community and the banks um, combined with the current makeup of their mid-level executive classes. I've talked about a lot of times, um, but nevertheless, ESG, once again, a corrupt and useless measurement of corporate ethics, um, environmental, which is what it was originally about. Okay. Once again, I think you could find some justification and plausibility for that, but trying to throw in these completely subjective um, social and governance scores, which are mostly given out by these NGOs and these quasi-governmental quasi-governmental groups that really have no credibility at all. They're stacked with former members of Democratic administrations, whether it be Obama or Joe Biden or whatnot. They don't have any semblance of a neutrality. They're they're there to push a particular political agenda. And really, not that the political agenda is wrong just because it's Democratic, but I'm sorry. It should not be either of the two parties that get to push their political agenda through these kind of, you know, uh, uh, corporate ethics blackmail scores like ESG. So um, once again, diversity, equity, inclusion chat with Connor Friedersdorf, uh, environmental, social and governance, ESG chat with Haley Kennington, um, whichever one you're listening to right now. Once you finish that one up, please go check out the other one. think uh, the two issues are super interesting together. Diversity programs have been a staple of corporate HR policy for decades now, nearly stretching back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. During our current era of social justice, diversity programs have adopted contemporary lingo and morphed into diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. What was once a niche specialty grew in prevalence over the latter half of the 2010s and exploded in 2020 in reaction to the George Floyd riots. But as the smoke clears from the 2020 racial reckoning, many are questioning not only the utility of these programs, but also the economic appropriateness of them. If the goal is a more just society, are we really better off jacking up monthly retainers to corporate consultants than directing money to the poor? That is a question posed by my guest today, Connor Friedersdorf. Uh, he is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the editor of the Best of Journalism newsletter on uh, on Substack. Connor, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you really recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic titled, The DEI Industry Needs to Check Its Privilege, um, certainly acknowledging you know, the, the general questioning or skepticism around DEI programs and with this particular emphasis on their, their economic viability. But what were the observations that gave rise to you deciding to write about this right now? You know, I had seen a bunch of articles here and there in the press where a new skepticism about these programs was being expressed. And some of it was coming from people inside the industry, from from DEI consultants who were essentially saying, look, the rest of you guys are doing it wrong. Not me, of course. My approach is right, you should hire yeah. me. But you know, you know, everybody else is is kind of getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. And um and also, you know, specific trainings have leaked over time. Some of them have been put on YouTube. I think that this has caused a bit of consternation when some of the elements of those programs seemed absurd to most observers. And it really made me think 
back to uh, when George Floyd was murdered and that moment right afterwards when this whole industry just kind of exploded. Mm -hmm. And uh, apart from what you think about DEI in general, um, one way I started thinking about this, I don't put this in the article, but, um, but imagine if in 2020, instead of hiring corporate DEI consultants, imagine if every company in America started saying, we need to get the automobiles that our employees drive to work in tip-top shape. We need to hire a bunch of mechanics. We all need to do it at once. And imagine uh, those corporations hiring those mechanics. You'd have a lot of people pretending to know about cars who didn't really know about cars. Yeah. You would really inflate the industry um, because people doing the hiring wouldn't know what expertise to look for. You'd have a lot of charlatans. So whatever you think of DEI in general or the best version of it, I absolutely think that part of what happened in 2020 is that the demand spiked so quickly that you had a rush into the industry and you had a bunch of people doing the hiring of consultants who didn't have any expertise in what they were hiring for, didn't have clearly articulated goals of what outcomes that they wanted, didn't really even have an idea of um, the kind of mode or the approach that they ought to be looking for. I think that um, you know, most people are somewhat familiar with different kinds of therapists one might seek out. You know, you could go to someone who specializes in Freudian talk therapy, or you could go to someone who specializes in Jungian therapy or someone mm -hmm. who does cognitive behavioral therapy. And these are very different approaches. Um, DI consultants also have different approaches, but uh, it's very few people who can even list what some of them are, let alone understand the different approaches and what one might work best in their organization. So, you know, I was thinking of of all of these various doubts and critiques of the industry. And um, I was also talking on my own to DEI professionals who were expressing skepticism in private to me, people who didn't want to go on the record. And Finally, there was just enough skepticism on the record that I didn't even need to persuade anyone to say what they were telling me privately under their own names. Um, you know, like I said, the EI professionals were starting to speak out in the press. Um, some press outlets, some you know, news articles were starting to take a bit tougher look. I think the economic pictures changed for businesses, and businesses are laying off some of the DEI people that they hired. And um, finally. I started looking back at some of the literature on these things and, um, you know, I'd link a Harvard Business Review uh, kind of meta study of a bunch of corporate DEI programs going back decades. And there's just very little evidence that there's any efficacy here at all. And yeah. so, you know, the combination of explosion in multi-billion dollar business and, um, and, you know, little evidence of efficacy, I think would be worth looking at all on its own. And I'm pretty skeptical, actually, of non-DEI consultants. I think a lot of them waste a lot of money, too, in various corners of the corporate world. Um, but there was this added layer of this is all ostensibly being done in the name of social justice, in the name of improving the world, in the name of equity. And... Um, and what really pushed me over the edge to write this article and frame it in the way that I did um, was just thinking about the strangeness of um, improving social justice. Like if you had a many billions of dollars to spend and you wanted to improve um, 
equity in the world or, 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 you know, do something in the name of George Floyd, would it really be training sessions for corporate employees mostly? Just, it doesn't connect. And, you know, it's not just that um, one of these things followed the other in time as a kind of, um, you know, coincidence, you look at the pitches that DEI consultants are making to companies and they're invoking the murder of George Floyd. And then they're saying, and hire me and I'll, you know, reduce unintentional micro slights at your company, hire me and you'll improve retention. And there's just uh, an, an opposite kind of relationship between uh, a poor person's murder at the hands of police and the response that some people were suggesting with, of course, a financial motive for one of them on the other side of it. Sure. And also, I think it's very instructive that example you use in contrasting it with mechanics, because let's say the project was to go hire mechanics to go improve the performance of everybody's automobile. To a certain extent, that's measurable and demonstrable. You can verify that, right? Eventually, if the the people that you hire don't do a good job and it's wasteful, you know, the the quality or lack of quality of their work is going to get exposed. The strangest thing to me about all this DEI stuff as laundered through um, corporate America is everything in corporate America generally is supposed to be to a certain extent measurable, right? You're looking for results and you're looking for ways to measure those results. What on earth are supposed to be the measurements or the metrics to determine success or determine uh, um, whether or not, you know, DEI is, is useful and whether or not the specific consultants that you hire and the programs that you implement are useful. And yeah, as you alluded to, it kind of defaults to these ridiculous um, measurement tools such as, you know, whether or not there's uh, uh, how many people are charting microaggressions? Um, or if you're looking at retention, I, I mean, it would seem that whether or not people remain at your company could be is typically going to be the function of dozens upon dozens of factors, not you know whether or not they felt good about the racial composition and, and racial harmony or ethnic harmony of the workplace. Maybe someone offered them more money. Um, you know, to what extent do you think that this is? Uh, it, that you really a, this is really all just a square peg in a round hole because it's something that's not measurable. Yeah, I, I think that that there's a lot to that. I, I guess I would say that um, I think that this debate can be so polarizing in part because DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Any one of those words is a concept that can be defined in a bunch of different ways, and then you take the three of them and bundle them together. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a decision. Uh, if, for example, you buy into the notion that we ought to have diverse companies, and I do buy into that notion, um, I don't know why it follows that equity and inclusion are the yeah. two things to bundle with diversity to make it work. I could make yep. a case for a dozen different bundles that seem equally plausible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But so nevertheless, we have this bung bundle of vaguely defined words that different people um, in their minds are thinking refer to different things. And uh, and then we announce that this is the goal. And um, you've kind of created this, um, this rhetorical umbrella term that could conceivably encompass, that does, I think, encompass things that no one disagrees with. I think that if someone said... Um, you know, we need to 
stop people from hurling racial epithets at others at work, everyone would say, yeah, we agree with that. And does that go under the umbrella of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Sure. seems like it. Um, and, and so something's under that umbrella, you know, 99% of people would support. And then other things under that umbrella, um, you know, should everyone be paid the same at a company, right? Um, you could define equity in a way that it followed that everyone should be paid the same at a company. Um, I think very few people would endorse that. Um, and so, you know, you have this umbrella term that could conceivably um, <laughs> encompass anything from almost everyone agrees to almost no one agrees. And we shouted each other a lot without ever getting down to particulars. Um, you know, I say at some point in the piece that I wouldn't go so far as to say that um, no company should ever hire a DEI consultant. And I say that because I do think that there are defensible things under that umbrella. Um, but I would want to, uh, to your point, put those things a lot more specifically. For example, um, if a company makes a big push to um, make sure that it is not just hiring through the people that existing employees went to college with, say, and it does a lot of outreach to different communities to try to uh, give everyone the opportunity uh, to have a, an equal shot at the job and, and broaden the candidate pool and then try and hire the best person. And, and then they do that and they find for whatever reason, they're not sure that they're losing black or Hispanic ploy- employees at a greater rate, right? Now, that could be because other companies are uh, trying to hire more black and Hispanic employees and it's recruiting and it's nothing that the company is doing that's bad. Um, or they could find that maybe they are doing something that's that's driving away these employees and, and they ought not to do. Um, either way, every company has an interest in retaining the employees that they have. And so if you brought in a consultant who is an expert at retaining talent at companies, I would say, okay, that makes sense. It is a specific thing. It is measurable. Um, I, I don't know why we would just call that DEI. Like, why don't yeah. we just call it retention? Why don't we just say more specifically the actual things that we want to do? And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Yeah, and that used to be, and an, it's it's very telling in that the, the language and under the blanket of DEI, you know, one of the precepts is language is very important. Okay, well, language is very important here too, in that for decades, um, the general notion that companies should have programs typically through HR to be aware of discriminatory practices and that they may, that they're hiring, that that in hiring, they're not overlooking a number of communities. That was generally filtered under the umbrella, the category of diversity and maybe even diversity lowercase d, not necessarily uppercase d. All of a sudden you get this bundle of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, aside from, and then that includes the concept of equity that, which was for, you know, decades was, was understood as equality and the DEI consultants in that world generally like to be very forthright about that distinction between equity and equality. And so you have this really odd mission creep. Um, and it and it seems like, you know, that if you it's it you find it hard to believe that there are um, are pure motives here because DEI, as it exists now, as bundled together, feels so bureaucratic in nature. It feels like it truly was just commodified for consult for there to be an industry of consultants. Um, so looking at at that mission creep from 
you know, for very to various degrees of success or failure through the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s, um, the, the notion of companies focusing on diversity or at least making sure they don't have a lack of diversity to diversity, equity, inclusion. What, what do you see as, as the mission, as what the catalyst was for that mission creep where even as late as maybe 2012, diversity programs very quickly became diversity, equity, inclusion, and an entire industry sprouted up around it? Yeah. You know, I don't know the kind of intellectual history of how we got um, equity and inclusion. You know, I've read academics who were theorizing that, you know, the basic story is something like, it's not enough just to have diversity in your organization. Once you do, you have to uh, include all the people that are there and mm -hmm. to create an equitable environment, whatever that means. Right. And so, um, you know, again, it's like that could just cover common sense things that everyone would agree with, or it could lead you down paths where you're just doing things that strike most people as crazy. Um, but, um, but, but, you know, I think that that's kind of the basic story that has emerged now. Um, who made that push and why? And to what degree was it deliberately ending up at this place? And to what degree is it kind of arbitrary? I, I don't know. I mean, I see people adding belonging now before our eyes, the yeah, idea that yeah. we should have diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. <laughs> and it's like, you know, in the same way that the LGBTQ acronym keeps getting longer and longer in a sort of we're going to recognize another thing, you know, you could imagine DEI going down this same road. Um, and, you know, um, as a side note, when we're talking about belonging, um, one of the things you also see in some of these DEI or DEIB, I guess, initiatives is companies making statements that clearly they do not believe the idea, for example, that uh, to foster belonging, everyone should feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. You see this language repeated here and there. And in fact, um, there is no major company that wants its employees to bring their whole selves to work. Not at and all. I guarantee you that, you know, the first time someone tells the sort of joke that they tell with their friends in a bar or yeah. hangs hangs the wrong swimsuit calendar on their cubicle wall and raises the possibility of a sexual harassment lawsuit or a, a thousand other things. Um, the fact that these companies obviously don't believe this uh, will be clear to anyone who doesn't realize it already, which is most people. Um, but it's just another example of the kind of haziness and lack of rigor uh, that just sort of characterizes this whole world of um, rhetoric and initiatives. Yeah. And, and to get into some of the specifics of that, I mean, you mentioned that, and I want to get into, you know, we, we, we talk about this in, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of at a high level and identifying its flaws, but it's interesting to look at the specific tactics um, and aspects of DEI programs, which I'll want to in just a moment. But you say you've spoken with a number of these consultants, people, people who are, you know, uh, inside the Borg here. Um, the consultants that you've spoken with, what what have been their specific observation, you know, observations and complaints and how, you know, from a have they expressed to you professionally how it's how they see things developing from here? And, you know, is this just how do they see things developing from here? 
Yeah. I mean, to some degree, these consultants are responding to businesses and and what they're asking for. Um, and confusingly, these businesses are also responding and deferring to these consultants and, and yeah. not sure what they're asking for. And so there's yeah. a lot of confusion. But the way that I've come to understand it to kind of um, reference back to the different kinds of therapists, there are a few different kinds of DEI consultants that I've been able to identify. Um, one kind, I would characterize them as specializing in facilitating dialogue, right? So um, if you imagine that um, perhaps there was a manager at a company that it turned out was discriminating against um, black employees or was discriminating against female employees. Um, and there was a big lawsuit and it was kind of wrenching for the work culture. And uh, it felt as if there was a need to clear the air and to let people say what they were feeling and to talk to management about concerns that they had. You might bring in um, a consultant who specialized in dialogue, who maybe was good at conflict resolution. And, um, you know, th this is one kind of expertise, someone who facilitates difficult conversations, right? Um, another kind of consultant might be more of an organizational theory person who could tell you best practices in terms of, oh, we have all these resumes coming in. Um, when is it worth having uh, taking the names off and having it, it be a blind process where you're not sure uh, when uh, when might that might that not be good? Because uh, at some point you're going to know the names and you're going to have face to face interviews and it wouldn't be doing any good. Uh, what are some case studies of other organizations who have faced these same kinds of challenges and how have they responded? Right. Um, then there's the kind of uh, Robin D'Angelo figure. Uh, who believes that coming into an organization and awakening white employees to the notion that they are privileged is the way forward. Mm -hmm. um, to me, this is the worst kind of diversity consultant because I'm a student of the political psychology research on authoritarians. And what that research tells me is that if you go into an organization and you raise the salience of race and you make people think about racial identity as an important differentiator of people mm -hmm. and you you make different race people in different racial groups feel like people in the other group are the other, you're yeah. not going to increase tolerance. You're going to increase intolerance yeah. because there's a certain personality type that as soon as they see someone as other, they are more antagonistic to them. And mm -hmm. so um, I, I think that the Robin D'Angelo type of consultant is likelier to do harm than just do nothing, which I think is what some of the consultants do. Um, and let's see, was there another type that I, um, yeah, there's just some stuff that I, I was noticing some of the tactics here are aspects of DEI programs. I mean, you, <clears throat> unconscious bias training, allyship training. I don't know where they came up with that one. Um, bystander communications training so i mean these un unconscious bias training is one that does you know some of these are are um, almost exclusively um features of you know post great awakening recent social justice era but unconscious bias training for instance something that's been around for quite a while and um the, the notion being that we all have certain pre prejudices that might not 
you know, might not uh, viscerally manifest themselves and noticeably manifest themselves, but that we, by having these conversations and, and understanding where we are unconsciously or subconsciously judging people based on certain characteristics before getting to know them, I mean, theoretically, that that could be a positive, right? But even that seems to be not, you know, not yielding effective results in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole um, research literature rabbit hole you can go down on the implicit um, bias test, or is it the implicit association test? It's this outgrowth of psychology that was very trendy for a while and was one of those things that, um, as I understand it, failed to replicate repeatedly during the replication crisis. And it seems like that, as much as the common sense idea that most people have some unconscious bias was the driver of this kind of corner of the diversity industry. And it's like, yeah, I suppose theoretically you could make someone conscious of an unconscious bias that they have. But, um, you know, uh, I suppose if I uh, were worried about being in a group that was discriminated against at a company, um, I would much prefer an analysis of, to see if everyone is getting paid the same and, um, you know, um, a feeling of certainty that I could file a complaint without being retaliated against. Um, Just in interviewing uh, employees as opposed to diversity consultants, I mean, employees of all races, of all genders, um, of all sexual orientations, um, You'll be hard pressed to find someone whose biggest concern at work is a kind of someone might have unconscious bias against me. Um, the kinds of the kinds of complaints I hear that really affect people in their lives tend to be a lot more blatant and awful than that. And um, it, it just I, I don't buy the idea that um, this is actually what any significant portion of people want is to have their coworkers learn about unconscious bias for four hours. Um, I I would think that insofar as unconscious bias exists, um, surely a four hour training can't um, (laughs) rid people of it, you know? Um, And, and, you know, I'm open to having my mind changed about this, which is to say, if you show me uh, experimental data with a a control group that goes through unconscious bias training and then, somehow some other real world outcome is improved because of that. Um, then, you know, maybe I'd take another look at that and say, okay, maybe I can imagine a, an application inside of a workplace. Um, but nothing uh, of that sort of rigor is happening when these trainings are happening around unconscious bias. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess that also speaks to the 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 measurability issue. I mean, how on earth do you measure these things? And that going back to some of the fundamental um, issues with 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 DEI training uh, through the corporate lens in general, and something that someone mentioned is that you know, in response to George Floyd in 2020, uh, previously DEI consultants were justifying their existence based on a business case. They were saying, "Hey." or diversity consultants. We are we're, we're necessary because it's good for the bottom line. It's good for business to, you know, be looking towards a number of diverse uh, diverse voices to have diverse hiring practices. Your business is going to be better overall because we are going to provide uh, a positive element to your to your 
to your business, to the business structure, right? That's going to improve profits and the functioning of the business. Um, And that shifted to a personal values-based justification in that, no, you need us because it's the right thing to do. And this is a, a this is for, just in general for societal betterment, right? And you, you know, thing, try, trying to mix the two of those, trying to commingle the two of those in terms of both judging things from a purely business perspective, which, which you know, the business world has spent decades uh, determining how you measure efficacy and benefit and results um, versus something that's just purely about values and, and, and charity and doing things for the right, you know, because of the happen to be the right thing to do. Co-mingling those two seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, and and it would seem that in trying to get a better gauge or measure whether or not there's people, whether or not people's kind of subconscious or or mildly conscious beliefs have evolved their, their employees on a personal level i mean that that just seems like a lost cause and how on earth do you measure that yeah and i i think so long as you have legitimate disagreement about a lot of these things you know what's the best way to run a diverse organization um, what are employees upset about? What are best practices when it comes to something like um, to what degree employees talk about politics at work, for example? Or, you know, you can think of a thousand different times when people come into conflict and, and there's disagreement about the best way to handle a lot of them, of course. So even people who are earnestly interested in having a diverse organization run as fairly as possible are going to have disagreements about these things. The idea of bringing someone in to train everyone in one way of thinking about it, of course, this is going to alienate people. Uh, It's going to alienate the people who are being trained in what some other people think and they don't. Mm -hmm. And just uh, there's no way around it. Right. And it, it doesn't strike me as especially necessary to train anyone in some of the you know, oh, we've identified this as management is the best practices for how we're going to handle promotions, right? Okay, you can implement that. You don't need to gather employees together in a room and train them in the theory and the particular um, jargon of a, a yeah. obscure corner of yeah. academia. Um, and but if you're the consultant who's being paid to do the training, you're certainly going to be a proponent of it. Uh, sure. Yeah, and and I think that you know we've been getting a bit down into the weeds of how do you measure the efficacy of this? Um, you know, does it really do any good or not? It, it seems pretty hard to tell. And it, this is why if we step away from the idea of like what's good for organizations um, and we instead address like what is good for social justice, um, one thing that we can be pretty confident is going to be efficacious is giving money to people who don't have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, no one doubts that um, that there are ways to do that that help the recipients, right? And so um, if we're clamoring as employees for our employer to do something that's going to help social justice, then to me, um, giving money to a, a, an important cause in an efficacious way is a lot uh makes a lot more sense than spending it on dei consultants um and for whatever reason i think that there's a larger trend among uh college educated people of 
trying to purify their own environments instead mm -hmm. of helping uh, the people who are most in need. I don't know why that is, uh, but I started noticing it in, uh, I think it was 2014 or 2015 on some of the college campus protests where it's like, you know, I remember, or I guess I don't remember, I'm too young to remember, but, you know, I've read about a time when um, students at um, selective colleges who wanted to improve social justice risked their lives by, you know, driving from the Northeast down to the South for civil rights work in um, these Jim Crow communities where um, they were helping some of the most oppressed people in America in a very direct way. And I'm not saying that any um, activism that doesn't reach the threshold of the civil rights era is not worth doing. Uh, it was nevertheless striking to me to cover, for example, a story at, at Yale in, I think, 2015, where the social justice cause of the moment was that um, a couple of professors who were also like professors and residents, masters, as they call it, of a residential college, sent out a email about Halloween costumes that some students didn't like. And this was the cause for them to march to the professor's house, sidewalk chalk messages, make a circle and scream at him. Mm -hmm. This this was like the big activist cause of the moment yeah. was like a meta conversation about Halloween costumes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's like, um, again, you, like setting aside what you think of, of th that controversy and what it was about, surely if the goal is advanced social justice, doing it out in the world among the neediest people is a much more efficacious and defensible way of doing it than focusing on a kind of, um, you know, um, you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Sure. Um, so, you know, at the bottom, it's like, uh, you know, the theory goes, you need air and water and food. And once you meet those needs, you can, you can go one level up in the pyramid of needs and you can start focusing on things like uh, shelter and safety. And then you can level up again and start focusing on things like friends and family. And then you level up again and you're focusing on like self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And then at the very top of the pyramid, if you can get there, it's self-actualization. And it seems to me that college educated people are focusing a whole lot on self-esteem and self-actualization while there's a bunch of people at the bottom of the pyramid that just need yeah. like safe neighborhoods and material concerns, food and shelter. And maybe we ought to reorient our, we're going to improve the world away from the people at the top of the pyramid and toward the people at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, a comment, a commentator mentioned it, you know, framed it in an interesting way. He said that one of the big problems of, you know, recent social justice movements is that it's focused on redistribu redistribution amongst the executive class instead of between the executive class and the non-executive class. It's like you're pretty much just trying to re reshuffle who is at the top of the professional pyramid or the professional managerial class pyramid. Um, and, and because that that's safer, you, you know, because you can you don't have to get your hands dirty in exposing yourself to the more material um uh, uh materially scarce aspects of society um but still give give the impression that you're doing something you're doing something good uh i mean one very telling example there and uh, and one of the pieces that you linked to um in your atlantic article it mentioned the 
the grocery chain Kroger's um, and you know, the CEO Rodney McMullen touted a press release about greater racial, gender, health, and wealth equity uh, that he believed would drive true and lasting lasting change and better outcomes in our country. Three days later, the company revealed in a regulatory filing that McMullen made his biggest salary ever, $22.4 million in 2020, while the median salary of workers fell 8%. And you continually see this dynamic where the the spoils of our, you know, new digitized, globalized economic system um, with just a, a obscene wealth inequality um, that that continues unabated the wealth constant and power concentration within the top of the executive class continues to get stronger and and you know and heavier um, and the the troubles and the risks to being a working class and the difficulties of being working class continue to grow and very few people you know you could say well I mean, look at it, I think it'd be very telling that the Bernie Sanders movement seems to have evaporated into nothingness and the DEI social justice, uh, um, you know, identity based social movement seems to still be be chugging along, even though it's seeing some pushback um, in that it's safer to it's safer to try to focus on causes and portray yourself as in furtherance of those causes if you don't have to expose yourself to riskier material or acknowledge riskier material circumstances. Yeah, you know, I I've followed I followed the kind of what what I think of as the left socialist critique of kind of left um social justice politics mm-hmm. and um I I think that oftentimes it's less it's less CEOs who are trying to like distract from their wealth or something like that. Not not to say that that could never happen, but um, I think it's it, it's often more um, college graduates and people who were middle class and higher in upbringing just um, not having much exposure to people at the bottom or what the biggest uh, hardships in their lives are. And, you know, I think that you can be anyone from... Um, Ron Paul to Bernie Sanders or anywhere in between and have a lot of different ideas about how to help people at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not even getting into that argument about what is the best way to help them. I'm just saying um, I know what isn't the best way to help them. It's focusing all of our attention and, and care about improving the world on um, on people at the top. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not talking about like, uh, the 1% or something. I'm just talking about the broad class of people who have, um, pretty good jobs and health insurance and are worried about uh, a thing that we've literally called microaggressions, like set aside the fact that they're not especially like aggressive, but like we have put micro right in front of them. And, and we really are talking about a country with, um, you know, just so many people dying of fentanyl overdoses of still, um, you know, police departments that don't do a great job by my lights um, of, um, you know, homeless camps in our cities. Um, There's a lot of just glaring problems out there of people who really, um, you know, would feel thrilled if they were getting paid a hundred thousand dollars uh, at a job where they couldn't bring their whole selves to work and occasionally <laughs> had to deal with a microaggression. And um, I say that not because I, you know, want anyone, um, let alone just 
uh, people of color or something to face microaggressions, but because I think that um, unintentional slights at one's workplace, not feeling wholly seen by one's coworkers, these are just inevitable facts of life. And yeah. um, everyone experiences them, of course. And to um, to imagine that we need to keep pouring billions of dollars into fixing them until they're fixed is just to like set that money on fire because it, it's um, you know past some reasonable point. It's impossible. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And to put the economic the economics of DEI in perspective here, I don't know, you know, in universe, I think there's there's you're really running in parallel here between corporate America and American higher education because they have some of the same factors driving both and the same, you know, the the kind of uh, and what was once the bloat that was once just the province of um, a, a higher education because it, you know private institution not necessarily uh, not necessarily profit oriented um, but now you see corporate America taking on some of those uh, some of those characteristics I mean you think University of Michigan you have 163 administrators that have something to do with diversity equity inclusion total cost of that 18 million per year you've got 17 DEI staffers making over $200,000 per year apparently uh, the total number of DEI personnel at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. It's more than double the number of history professors. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. And, and I think, uh, I'm sorry, let go no, ahead no, and continue. Finish. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I was going to say, and I often think about, you know, in my article, I say that we should be giving some of this DEI consulting money to the poor insofar as we're trying to advance social justice. I think the same thing um, or a similar thing about institutions of higher education I see the same trend you're talking about of just absurd numbers of administrators. And mm -hmm. I think it's a useful thought exercise to ask yourself, okay, if you're hiring administrators to help, um, let's say, um, descendants of American slaves who are your students, or say it's just students of color that you want to help, or say it's first generation students that you want to help, whatever it is, you have to do the math where you ask yourself, if we could just give money to each of these students, at what amount of money would they clearly be better off with the money than with all of these administrators, right? Sure. So like if the number was like a hundred bucks or even a thousand bucks, then, you know, probably maybe an administrator would do more good. I don't know. Uh, but like surely if we were to give all of these students $20,000 a year to do with what they want, uh, pay down their debt, have, you know, the ability to live closer to campus, whatever. Um, at some point, you cross the, some threshold of money. Uh, I don't know if we have gotten to the threshold that would be persuasive to everyone at different institutions, but I think it is worth asking the question because it, it's like uh, higher education is getting more and more expensive every year. Yeah. And, um, you know, all these people have gobs and gobs of student debt. This is a choice we could make. People don't act right. like it is, but like it is. We chose to hire all of these administrators. We could choose to not and spend the money a different way. Um, yeah. It, it kind of morbid hypocrisy of having this massive DEI staff uh, ostensibly to improve the lives of minority students. Meanwhile, they're saddled with, you know, a ton of student debt when when they graduate. Uh, uh, maybe they're better off with a DEI bureaucracy more akin to 1997 and tuition costs more akin to 1997. 
Yes, I think that that probably would be true. <laughs> um, and so uh, these the dynamics around DEI and the hypocrisies and, and the questions that we've posed here. I mean, th this all does track back to, you know, it, you can't really separate it from the broader culture or whether whether or not you would like to do so and how that also it's interesting to see how that the culture was being fought economically. It was really interesting. A thread that you were tweeted uh, the other day about, you know, um, not, not necessarily criticizing or supporting, but acknowledging that with the recent campaigns against from right wing groups or conservative consumers against, you know, Target and Bud Light, that it seems like for the first time now, the the right in the culture war has ex exercised some economic power in boycotting uh, corporate America in response to, you know, uh, programs or campaigns for them that might not speak to their values. And now it looks like it finally worked, right? And that the left, left has been pretty successful in boycotts and flexing their economic power against corporations that don't seem to be in furtherance of their values. And now the right's doing it. And so now we're going to have this, this, uh, you know, this uh, mutually assured destruction or this mutual escalation campaign. Um, and I thought it was really interesting thread. And, you know, I don't know to, to what extent that you dived into it, but um, interested your thoughts on how um, we might even be getting into a new phase of the culture war or the battle over the, the, you know, racial and gender discourse in this country being fought economically um, through co through corporations, whether it be in, in terms of boycotts or, you know, internal DEI uh, motivations for DEI programs. Yeah. You know, I I look at these boycotts with some uh, exhaustion only because I'm tired of of everything being politicized. Um, yeah. You know, I see conservatives very happy that they. Uh, caused Bud Light to back down from from doing a deal with a trans influencer, and um, I don't know. Did they did these conservatives win anything? Um, like they kind of punished this company, and maybe there won't be another TikTok deal with a trans influencer being sponsored in a small way by a beer company. But like, what does that get you exactly? I don't. Uh, I'm not convinced a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I do think that, you know, now you see some of these companies caught between, um, the left and the right. And, you know, actually I wrote a piece recently about, um, the changing relationship between corporate America and, uh, activism and the left, especially where it wasn't so long ago that, the left was up in arms about Citizens United and the idea that corporations had free speech rights was anathema to them. Um, and now we have Ron DeSantis punishing Disney for um, opposing his agenda and Disney suing and saying, you uh, violated my First Amendment rights and the left broadly cheering Disney and thinking that they ought to be able to say what they want about DeSantis's policies without the state punishing them. That's certainly my position. Uh, but um, you see the left to a greater degree embracing the idea of corporate speech and not saying that these big, powerful corporations ought to stay out of the political process, as they once said, because they have too much influence, but rather taking the position that not only do they have to be, or not only can they use corporate speech, they must use it for progressive causes yeah. or they're bad. And yeah. um I think that um, 
you know, some of it is cynicism making, which is to say, you know, I think some people are against, um, you know, actually against gay marriage or against trans rights. That's some of the opposition to this kind of stuff. But then there's some of it that is also um, like uh, a reaction to the idea that like we don't actually believe you, you know, multinational beer company have any opinion at all or care at all about these issues. And we would also like it if um, politics wasn't thrust into every part of life so much. And I'm sympathetic to that as someone who is really interested in politics, as someone who will defend, you know, the First Amendment rights of any kind of protesters, basically anywhere. Um, it does at some point become exhausting when every single product gets coded in one political team or another, when every sports event that you watch, um, there are protests and counter protests. Um, it, it, it's, well, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to me, it just it inherently feels condescending and patronizing coming from a corporation that has no relation to the topic whatsoever. Like right. I, I, I it's similar to a lot of the the backlash against DEI. It's like, OK, listen, I'm not 12 years old. I don't need this consultant, you know, coming in here and giving us a lecture or or a, a seminar like, you know, like we're, we're children that in order to exercise the basic precepts of decency right or being told that you know that this company is it knows which values we should be holding better than i do um and that there might be a time and a place for those conversations to be happening but a a profit mo you know a company that exists only for profit motive or that a brand that was built off the backs of a b c d e f or g um has no place lecturing me about these things i mean it certainly felt that way with with sports illustrated um and you know listen like sports illustrated you exist because of male sports fans you exist this is a company that was built off of it only makes a dollar because it catered to the interests of male sports fans including some people who like to see pretty girls in bikinis for decades and all of a sudden you're now uh, it, you've now taken it upon yourself to tell everybody that no we need to um, we need to reform our understanding of what beauty is um, I don't believe that these are um, are, are humanitarian you know, I don't believe your motives are humanitarian and, and benign I think you're just lecturing me I mean at least that's that seems to be uh, also you know a good chunk of the uh, of the resistance to this I, I'm old enough to remember also something that I think younger millennials and members of Gen Z don't quite realize which is that you know after 9-11 there were a bunch of companies telling us through their commercials and imagery and language and whatever basically that they you know loved America and hated the terrorists or something like that mm -hmm. and I was equally cynical then. I was saying, you know, I would watch it then and I'd be like, this is a bit over the top. Like, I don't believe that yeah. you who are trying to sell me like, you know, deodorant or something, whatever it was, yeah. um, actually hold these, you know, deeply patriotic beliefs that distinguish you from the other deodorant selling. It's like, come on, um, yeah. I'm just going to buy the deodorant that works best and assume that the people in the factory making it probably have like similarish views about all kinds of things. Like, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. kind of, um, it's just kind of silly, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, people obviously uh, have a right to engage in whatever boycotts they want, but, um, I, I think that the winners in all of this are actually 
people on the fringes on both sides of the boycotts who strengthen one another and um, <laughs> end up annoying many of us in the middle who would like a return to uh, calmer times that, that, that we can remember, uh, in part because um, I don't associate those calmer times with less rapid progress toward a better world. In fact, Absolutely. Uh, quite the quite the opposite, I think, in many cases. Yeah. Um, and that actually goes back to a, a piece that you wrote. You know, if, I think it might be the first place where you caught my eye. I think 2015. Um, and this this was kind of the initial reaction to some of us. Uh, let's call it early adopters and in, in understanding where, you know, American society was about to go as the, the social ju- justice movements that were burgeoning in 2013, 14, 15. And some of us, some people thought, oh, this is just uh, campus crazies and it's going to fade out after a couple years, just like the PC movement of the early 90s did. And then certain individuals like you and I who were like, wait a second. No, this this train is off the tracks. Let's keep on chugging. And you had a piece called the left's attack on colorblindness goes too far. And it you know one one the thesis one of the theses appeared to be that well wait a second colorblindness got us a lot of good results we really reduced and despite what anyone wants to say we we dramatically reduced prejudice and racial animus and once again this is not just a couple white guys whistling dixie you go look at the polls from the 2000s and early 2010s every racial ethnic group felt better about racial relations than they do now said wait a second like it, it, throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, because there may be imperfections to the notion of colorblindness I don't know. This does not seem like it's going to be a net plus. You wrote this in 2015, and man, did it seem to prove itself out over the next eight years. You know, what's interesting now is that um, you're starting to see, I think, more and more voters of color parting ways with the Democratic Party and the kind of left side of the progressive movement and rejecting this kind of politics. And I don't know that it's going to be sustainable for the left to um, act as if it is the preferences of people of color in the long term when it, it turns out that um, white progressives have more extreme views on many of these topics than um, many communities of color. So um, I do think that there is kind of hopefully some self-correcting mechanism ahead. Um but yeah, when I look to the past, and again, this is maybe being a bit older, but I'm you know, old enough to have remembered the Rodney King riots and mm. that time in Southern California and, you know, uh, African-American and Hispanic gangs killing one another, uh, tension between Korean immigrant store owners and African-Americans, um, just a, a time in L.A. where everyone seemed to be scared of everyone and angry at everyone and at one another's yeah. throats across these color lines. And then I watched crime and the murder rate drop. I watched those polls yep. that you were talking about where people felt better and better about, um, about racism, their own experiences of prejudice. Yeah. And it, it was heartening to see the salience of race and ethnic conflict go down and down and down. Uh, I think some of the people who never saw the bad old days um, didn't quite understand what raising the salience of race can do and has done it, I think, in a pretty naive way. And I thought for a minute that Trump's election was going to kind of um, 
prove to people that like, oh, wait a minute, if this guy's also raising the salience of race, right? Like um, maybe this is actually not a good way to go about it, but um, I don't know. I suppose we'll see presidential elections so often drive events in complicated ways in American life. And we're of course on the cusp of one. So we'll see what happens in 2024. I think actually um, on this issue set that we are talking about, um, like it's probably unlikely, probably Trump or if not Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis will get the nomination. But imagine how different our politics would be if it was like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley on a ticket running against Joe Biden. And what would the racial politics of that look like? It would be really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, it'll be fascinating. I mean, you know, I'm have a little, you know, more a higher opinion that Tim Scott might actually end up being the VP. Uh, well, probably not for Trump, but if DeSantis some somehow uh, somehow you know gets the nomination, I think he's actually a pretty likely case. So that's it. I think he saw his appearance on the View the other day, and I think it was probably the first time, despite all the people that the View tries to come on just as as he's a cannon fodder to paint as you know. Uh, right wing hayseed, you know, uh, racist, regardless of race or uh, race or creed. Um, Tim Scott seemed to have finally gotten through some of the rubble there through that audience. Uh, I thought was was interesting. And then you've got DeSantis, who the national press continues to paint as some, you know, white nationalist adjacent uh, uh standard issue right winger but then the results in florida completely and utterly contradict that entirely in that he got a massive shift in support amongst uh, primarily hispanic but also african-american voters from 2018 to 2022 guy won like pretty significantly uh cities like uh, counties like miami dade and palm beach that have a lot heavy had ne- not voted republican in years and all of a sudden you've got this multi-ethnic coalition around DeSantis. And that, that's his coalition in Florida. It's not just white voters. It's heavily multi-ethnic. Um, but then the, the the national press just refuses, you know, seems determined to stomp that out um, and take that, either deny that reality or make that reality not a reality by portraying him as, as some racist. Um, so if he does get the nomination, it'll be easy to, it'll be interesting to see if anything about that multiracial coalition that he has been able to gather in the state of Florida translates nationally, because I can tell you one thing, the Hispanics in Florida, even more, so, you know, even though they're generally, you know, historically a little more, little more conservative, Hispanics in Florida love this guy. And, you know, does that some does that translate in kind of the burgeoning, you know, realignment of Hispanic voters who seem don't seem entirely on board with a lot of this, this social justice stuff from the left? somewhat manifest itself in 2020 did not manifest itself much if it if at all other than in florida in 2022 does it manifest itself in 2024 and beyond you know this is why i thought that um probably i thought one of desantis's biggest mistakes was the stunt with flying the migrants to martha's vineyard um i think that apart from that he could point to his rhetoric and record and really distinguish himself from um from trump in a way that alienates a lot of people uh it remains to be seen if the hispanic support that he had will be at all affected by that stunt um because to me it does seem like it was using this group of people for kind of like political purposes and maybe maybe it will be effective i i know that a lot of people 
liked it too and thought that it was kind of showing the hypocrisy of of northeastern liberals or whatever so it could certainly politically yeah, not cut that it was in, bo- in both directions um yeah and uh but yeah i i will be curious to see um I, I guess I would say I think that there is a real opening for a Republican to put together a more multiracial coalition. Um, at the same time, um, I have also thought this for years in California while I have watched the Democratic Party in California get worse and worse. And I've watched the Republican Party fail to capitalize on it again and again, yeah. where I keep feeling like all they need to do is run a kind of campaign that um, reassures Hispanic voters that they're not the big bad boogeyman and it wouldn't be that hard. And I never see it done in a way that strikes me as skillful. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know. We'll see what the uh, the national GP, I I certainly think that, um, but I certainly think that Tim Scott could, um, could do it if he were, Mm -hmm. if voters gave him the opportunity to, um, get in that position. And I think, you know, um, I think DeSantis could do it too, if he kind of pivoted and talked in the right ways and, 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 and whatever, like on a national level. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the California issues, uh, probably fodder for an entire other hour uh, long (laughs) discussion between you and I and, uh, and the failure of the, uh, the California Republican party to clearly take advantage of, of an opportunity and some dissatisfaction with how things are going out here. But, uh, as you mentioned thus far to no avail, um, Connor, uh, this was fantastic. Uh, I've been a big fan of your work for quite a while now. Great piece on DEI. And, uh, I think uh, definitely not the end of that conversation, just the beginning as, um, and, and one piece that we didn't discuss too much, but that um, some of the DEI rollback right now is incidental to a tougher macro environment um, for in a tougher envi- economic environment for these corporations that if you're going to be you know laying off uh, a thousand employees, some of them are going to be from you know D- DEI may not be the first to go, but you're they're going to be part of the first tier, second tier of the executives to go that this might not be financially viable. The, these uh, value, ba- these, these positions that are value based as opposed to business case based in a tougher economic environment. Um, so uh, that, that could also be, you know, a big catalyst for the continued rollback of DEI programs. Um, but uh, thank you once again, so much for joining us. Um, if you could tell everybody where to find you. Uh, yeah, you can find my work at The Atlantic. Again, where I'm a staff writer, and I also have a newsletter, The Best of Journalism, on Substack, where I recommend the best things that I read uh, every week. The best things that you will read: uh, Connor's recent piece on DEI that the DEI industry needs to check its priv- uh, check its privilege. Please check it out at the, in The Atlantic. And uh, everybody, this is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.